Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part two of our two-parter on the history of abortion and really the history of the criminalization and subsequent legalization of abortion focused here in the United States. Yeah, in our last episode, we essentially ended on the point where uh, abortion had become illegal across America. Uh, women who sought abortions were considered immoral and irresponsible. There was no discussion of what responsibility the father had, if any. And all of this was set against the backdrop of being the progressive era, where a lot of people assumed they knew better, that they knew better than women of whatever class, but particularly poor women. Uh, they assumed they knew better than women of color. Uh, they assumed they knew better than midwives and that all of these people were just essentially uh, helpless, unintelligent, immoral, low class people who should be taught just how immoral they were being by seeking abortions. And there is one person in particular who is complex and controversial, but also a pioneer and someone who, in a very fascinating way, encompasses all of these elements. Is it me? (laughs) Caroline? And it's Conger. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. It is Margaret Sanger. Oh, so different. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think she was also a brunette. I'll take it. Yeah. Another brown-eyed girl. Yes, exactly. Um, And, of course, Margaret Sanger was controversial in her day, just as she's still controversial now. But in an effort to provide women a way to prevent pregnancy, she wanted to liberate them. She wanted to give women a choice in limiting their families. But in doing so, she also wanted to prevent abortion. She was not on the abortion train, so to speak. But this is a woman who also then helped found Planned Parenthood. Exactly. And um, she came of age under the Comstock era laws. And for those of you who haven't listened to part one, just as a recap, Anthony Comstock is <laughs> the worst. <laughs> he basically uh, is responsible for outlawing any sort of birth control related information being sent through the mail. Mm-hmm. And regardless, Sanger dedicated her life to legalizing birth control, the very thing that would be illegal to talk to people about, send correspondence about. I'm sure you could not advertise birth control at the time. And she wanted to develop what she called a magic pill to help save women's lives. Yeah, and so it's worth noting, like I was saying, that Sanger thought that abortion was okay only as a last resort to save the mother's life. She thought that doing it to limit offspring was dangerous and vicious. But the whole thing was that she felt that providing women a safe contraceptive method would make abortion wholly unnecessary, which is interesting when you revisit that thought today, because so many people are still against comprehensive sex ed. They're against providing birth control or contraception of any kind. And yet they're also against letting people have abortions. So Sanger's reasoning was if we teach women and couples, not just women, but couples about 
contraception. We can prevent this thing that so many people seem to dislike so much. And this conviction was deeply personal for her because she watched her Irish Catholic mother essentially waste away at 48 from tuberculosis after having 11 children and seven miscarriages. And after she grew up, she worked as a nurse in New York where she treated poor immigrant women who pursued unsafe abortions after using ineffective contraception. So she saw firsthand on you know, a professional and also a, a very personal familial level, the what, the impact of women not having choice or any control really over their bodies. Right. And she it's it's said that she blamed her father like over her mother's coffin for his sex drive that killed her mother. But uh, if we're going chronologically, uh, Margaret Sanger was super busy in the years 1914 to 1916. Who wasn't? I, seriously. I mean, can't get a break. But so in this time, in 1914, she coins the term birth control. So anytime in this episode, in the previous episode, we've said the words birth control. Those words didn't even really exist yet in the way that we think of them until Sanger coined the term. Uh, in 1915, she was indicted for sending diaphragms through the mail. And then in 1916, she opens the country's first birth control clinic in Brooklyn. Of course, it was shut down just a few days later, and Sanger was convicted under those Comstock laws of disseminating birth control info. But she's a sneaky little minx, and she did that on purpose. It's not like she was like, oh, I'm going to hope that no one notices, and I'm going to be mailing women diaphragms in Ohio. No, she knew that it was against the law to disseminate birth control and to disseminate information about birth control. So she herself leaked the information to the press so that she could fight basically within the newspapers and from court these terrible freaking Comstock laws. And when she appealed her conviction, she won, and it led to a new interpretation of New York's anti-contraception statute exempting doctors from the rule prohibiting birth control information dissemination if it was for medical reasons. There we go. So Sanger gets her first big victory. Then in 1921, she founds the American Birth Control League, which is the precursor to Planned Parenthood. Yeah, and the thing is, she wouldn't have been able to do that had she not gone through the trouble of mailing diaphragms. You know what I mean? Like, she could never have had this clinic Unless she broke the law, she had her good friend, Catherine Moneybags McClintock, smuggle these diaphragms back in her coat from Europe so that she could mail them. And of course, BTW, if you want to learn more about Catherine McClintock, you need to go over to our sister podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. They've got a great episode all about her. But anywho, in 1923... Uh, the Clinical Research Bureau opens, and it's part of that American Birth Control League. It's the first legal birth control clinic, and it serves as the ABCL's medical arm. So it provides couples with contraception and counseling. It conducts research into contraceptives and reproduction-related medical practices. So she's a, she's a genius, like managing to break the law in order to be able to open Essentially, what is like a a loophole clinic? Like, oh, well, you know, I can't 
provide women with birth control or birth control education, but these doctors can. And so after a lot of wrangling and separating and merging and renaming, these two groups, these two related groups, become Planned Parenthood in 1942. And in 1948, just a few years later, Planned Parenthood awards a grant to the pretty nutty Dr. Gregory Pincus, who works with John Rock to create the pill. So Sanger was the ideas lady. She's like cornering Pincus at cocktail parties, being like, you're going to do this for me. And he's like, cool, let's do it. I'm already testing things in possibly unethical ways. And wealthy feminist suffragist Catherine McCormick teamed up with her to encourage that research and development. So you've got these women with kooky ideas about giving women their freedom to choose what kind of life they want to live. And by the 1960s, Planned Parenthood had become this major force for women's health, birth control, and family planning. And in 1962, President Alan Guttmacher is this huge advocate for abortion access in the wake of these health crises in the United States, the thalidomide and rubella crises, which led to a lot of birth defects, a lot of deformities among children. But abortion services do not become part of Planned Parenthood until after the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. Whew. But anyway, we've got to back up because the whole thing about why Margaret Sanger still today is even more controversial than just supporting birth control and women's independence. Oh, my God. Imagine the thought. Also in 1921, the same year that she founded the American Birth Control League, She also penned an essay titled The Eugenic Value of Birth Control Propaganda. Yeah, so she was one of the many, many high-profile Americans to subscribe to the eugenic theory. But the whole thing, uh, as Jean H. Baker argues in her book Margaret Sanger, A Life of Passion, is that her acceptance of the movement was a calculated, pragmatic tactic. Because Margaret Sanger was nothing, y'all, if not pragmatic and tactical and calculated. Baker writes, she needed allies and eugenics, the expert qualifications of its proponents, the scientific trappings of its evidence, its expanding network of journals and associations, its general acceptance among Americans, and even its international connections represented an opportunity to find friends and join a popular movement. But the thing is, she wasn't exactly welcomed with open arms by racist and classist eugenicists. In fact, a lot of them dismissed her and said that she didn't really understand the theory. And they really weren't too interested in her birth control-based notoriety either. Um, and the main reason that they kind of gave Singer the side-eye was that she rejected the notion of race suicide and that rich white people should have more babies. Really, her thing, as we've said, was trying to liberate women. In the process, she challenged eugenicists' sex for reproduction idea. She really believed in the importance of the environment in improving society because she'd been born into one of those overpopulated, impoverished families. So she really thought that overpopulation was the problem, not the quote unquote good stock, as Teddy Roosevelt put it, which is a euphemistic way of saying white folks. Yeah, white folks work in farm jobs and whatever. Uh, so when we look at that essay from 1921, 
There's some good parts of it, right? So she called birth control a new weapon of civilization and freedom. She wrote, not until the parents of the world are thus given control over their reproductive faculties will it ever be possible, not alone to improve the quality of generations of the future, but even to maintain civilization at its present level. And she really dismisses politicians and theorists, idealistic codes of sexual ethics, the same things that people say today in criticizing things like abstinence only sex ed, because the whole idea of like people like sex, people are going to do the sex. Let's not have these idealistic thoughts about people not having sex and let's try to meet them where they are. But. Of course, there is the in her essay as well, in which she writes the eugenic and civilizational value of birth control is becoming apparent to the enlightened and the intelligent. So, I mean, basically, it seems like she I don't know. I mean, that she's sort of trying to get on their good sides by being like, yeah, 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 eugenics, that's totally cool. And I've got this great way that you can make that happen. It's through this little thing called birth control. And if we can teach you about eugenics and the importance of that, then in the process, we can teach mothers about prophylaxis, sexual hygiene and infant welfare. So while I I honestly, I don't see her motives as entirely pure because even moderately aligning with eugenics is is not OK. Um, but it does seem like she has ulterior motives to what she's saying. Yeah, because it does get worse. I mean, I'm not going to lie here. She basically said, listen, we can't stand by as the poor, criminal and disabled have more kids than the wealthy do. Uh, but she wasn't arguing that we should, for instance, abort the children of poor people or disabled people. She was saying rather all of us should be having fewer children. She's got this really long quote about how the unbalance and this is this is under the category of bad. Uh, she says there's this unbalance between the birth rates of the fit and the unfit, which is a huge menace to civilization. And the wealthy, she's saying, or the fit, should not be taking cues from the poor and the unfit by having more children. We should all be limiting our reproduction. She did go on to appoint eugenicists to her clinic's board, uh, and eventually, f- her former critics, those people who were like, Sanger, you're not doing eugenics right. Even her former critics came to see birth control that she was advocating for as a weapon against the high birth rates of the so-called deficient. Though, as Jean Baker writes, they still favored sterilization. And not surprisingly, though, this whole, uh, you know, association with direct association with eugenicists and the viewpoints that she's espousing in this essay are used commonly today in attempts to discredit Sanger and convince people that birth control, to some extent, and abortion, to an even greater extent, are efforts specifically to wipe out black people. And in fact, black activists in the late 60s accused Planned Parenthood of committing genocide by providing birth control in their neighborhoods, wondering, hey, why are you setting up shop here? This seems a little suspicious. But it's important to note as well that back in the 1930s, leaders in the black community, including W.E.B. Du Bois and Mary McLeod Bethune, supported Sanger's birth control advocacy and her so-called Negro Project or effort to open clinics for black women 
in the segregated South where only white women had access to birth control and also to train black doctors. Yeah. And she, in an interview in 1945, was telling the reporter, when we first started out, an anti-Negro white man offered me $10,000 if I started in Harlem first. His idea was simply to cut down the number of Negroes, spread it as far as you can among them, he said. That is, of course, not our idea. I turned him down. But that is an example of how vicious some people can be about this thing. So her motivation, while, yes, she was opening birth control clinics in black neighborhoods or in poorer neighborhoods in general, her motivation was not to cut down on the numbers of poor people or people of color. Her motivation was to be the provider of this birth control and family planning and reproductive services information that women weren't getting elsewhere, particularly in this case, women of color. I mean, Imani Gandhi over at RH Reality Check argues that, to be honest, uh, Sanger was more ableist than she was capital R racist. Did she say racist things? Yes. Was she elitist? Probably. But she had far more negative things to say about the mentally and physically disabled in society going on to procreate than she did about people of color. Well, in those Planned Parenthood and, and birth control clinics being set up in black communities might also make more sense when we look at what was going on and the links that women, especially poor women and socioeconomically disadvantaged women, were having to go to in order to deal with unwanted pregnancies because... As we have said before, I mean, regardless of whether abortion is illegal or not, women have had them and will always have them. So if we go back to 1930, kind of while while Sanger is building up her biz, abortion was listed as the official cause of death for almost 2,700 women around the United States. And nearly 18 percent of maternal deaths recorded that year. And this is coming from the Guttmacher Institute. And. Down the road, antibiotics would help reduce the death toll. Um, but, I mean, if, if there's another Kinsey Institute researcher who estimated the annual illegal abortion death toll in the 1930s, the entire decade, at 17,000. Because, I mean, these numbers start to get a little unreliable because that 2,700 I just mentioned is what is officially recorded. But since there were so many back alley procedures happening and things happening in women's homes, um, undoubtedly the number is higher than that. But what did we do? How did we solve this issue of this, you know, this health crisis, essentially? Improving safe abortion? No, no. Enforcement. Get the police involved. Yeah. So instead of trying to help women educate families, anything of that, you know, very human nature, we essentially make women criminals. We we interrogate them while they're hospitalized after their botched procedures. Yeah. And in 1965, so 35 years later, illegal abortion was still accounting for 17 percent of all deaths attributed to pregnancy and childbirth that year. So, I mean, the, the situation hasn't improved. It's not like fewer women are seeking abortions. And low-income women are especially hit hard by this issue. So a study of low-income women in New York City in the 1960s found 
that 8% had ever attempted to terminate a pregnancy via illegal abortion, and 77% of those women attempted self-induced abortion. And of all the women they talked to, 38% of them knew someone who had sought an illegal abortion. And of course, when it comes to illegal abortions and self-induced abortions, it gets very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's right. That same study of women in New York found that one in four white women's childbirth fatalities happened because of an abortion compared to one in two women of color. So there you start to see that same socioeconomic issue cropping up. And from 1972 to 1974, in fact, the mortality rate due to illegal abortion for non-white women was 12 times greater than that for white women. And regardless, though, of these statistics, regardless of the fact that women knew that these kinds of procedures were very dangerous and illegal, they sought them out anyway. So, again, this is coming from the Guttmacher Institute. In the 1950s and 60s, an estimated 200,000 to 1.2 million abortions were performed in the United States. Uh, and by the 1960s, though, all states but Pennsylvania had exemptions to their abortion laws. So by this time, the laws on a state by state basis are starting to open up a little bit. People are starting to get together. There are even like coalitions of doctors who are, you know, having seen all these patients coming in, having, you know, damaged themselves from illegal or attempted self-induced abortions, see the problem and realize that something needs to be done with this. So we we are seeing more access, but obtaining an abortion during this time was still not very simple. Most hospitals would have a board of doctors set up, and it would usually, of course, be all dudes, um, where if you were a patient in need of an abortion, you would have to go before this board and essentially have your procedure approved. But even getting that far meant that you likely had to be a white woman with a little bit of disposable income. And time. So much time. The time to do this. I mean, you had to go before the standing hospital committee. It might require an additional physical exam by a doctor. It might require a mental health exam by a psychiatrist. And then you might have to have some type of law enforcement officer certifying that a woman had actually been sexually assaulted in the case of saying, I need the abortion because I was raped or assaulted. Yeah. I mean, because during this time, I should have clarified that this is only to obtain one of those, quote unquote, therapeutic abortions. This was an abortion on demand. Right. And, you know, you brought up the issue of um, laws and attitudes starting to loosen up a little bit. I mean, I think it's worth referring back to that author, Leslie Reagan, who we quoted in our first episode, where she talked a lot about uh, the professionalization of medicine and how that turned so many people against midwives and against trusting women to know their own bodies. And she pointed out, and I think it's worth noting here, that there's always been a distinction between, quote unquote, organized medicine and individual physicians, because organized medicine, capital O, capital M, in all of the air quotes, was at this time, yes, officially against abortion. And in some cases, maybe only accepting of abortion in the cases of rape or incest or things like that. Um, but it was the doctors who were on the front line, so to speak, who were seeing these desperate women who needed these procedures who might be trying to help women and provide them anyway. 
Well, and you also have women kind of creating their own abortion services in a way. Um, in 1963, the Feminist Abortion Counseling Service of the Chicago Women's Liberation Union, it's a long name, creates an underground abortion service codenamed Jane. And the story of Jane is worth its own podcast, honestly, because it all started when one woman um, was approached by a, a friend of hers who had knew someone who really needed an abortion. And this woman knew a doctor. And so that kind of started the whole thing. It's like she knew one doctor who could do it. So then like the word spread that uh, that this woman could hook you up with a doctor who would perform an abortion. And she realized that the more women who were coming to her, how big this need was. And since abortion and reproductive rights were such a huge issue within second wave feminism and women's liberation, uh, they decided to kind of align with uh, the Chicago Women's Liberation Union. And about 100 women set this underground service up that provided more than 11,000 safe and affordable abortions through 1973 when Roe v. Wade happened. Yeah, and it's fascinating that you could even find them through the phone book. It was actually listed under the name Jane Howe. And some of those women who were working in this network actually themselves became trained in administering an abortion. And there was one first person account that we read of a woman who went through this Jane process and she was astounded. Basically, she's like, here are these like soccer moms, essentially. She didn't say that, but it was like, here are these like well to do white ladies who have kids of their own. And they're like having me over for tea to prep me for the procedure to tell me what to expect and how to prepare and, and where to go. And she's like, it, you know, it just blew my mind that these women were being so supportive. Well, and when, though, the actual day would come, the women would have to be blindfolded during the procedure so that they could never see the abortionist, because uh, if they knew that, then that abortionist could be liable for obviously for being arrested. But they even mentioned that some Chicago police were helpful in a way about it. Like there were a couple of times when, you know, women would show up to the the Jane house, obviously, and look a little confused. And there'd be a police officer who'd be like, you know, just go, you know, kind of a wink and a nudge like, yeah, you're at the right place going up there, Um, which I mean, that's seems like a rare exception to the rule of people generally being awful in regard to women seeking abortion at the time. But it speaks so much to the lengths that women were willing to go to, that they would train themselves. Well, also, they had a doctor who trained them, too, um, and even performing abortions and, like, setting up this whole network in Chicago. And, and there was even uh, a black woman talking about her motivation for joining Jane so that when women of color would come through, that it would be comforting for them to see her in the room. And how interesting, though, right, that in our first episode, we talked about how the progressive era, really, Chicago was sort of an incubator for all of these progressive era movements. But I mean, they also existed, of course, across the country. And then you had that group of upper class white people, both women and doctors and whoever, telling other people that they knew better than them. And now here you've got this wonderful underground supportive network of, again, middle to upper class white women and women of color who are like, no, I'm I'm here 
for my sisters to help them through this time. And partially because of the protests and activism of the women's liberation movement and concerted efforts by groups of doctors, also religious groups, politicians, attitudes and laws were finally starting to change. In fact, by the time Roe v. Wade passed, most states had rolled back their abortion laws. Um, there was only there were only I think Pennsylvania was the only place that completely outlawed abortion under any circumstances. So as has been pretty clear throughout part one and now our part two discussion on abortion, it's really hard to separate the fight for birth control from the fight for abortion. They're all sort of one in the same, especially when you look back at the era of the Comstock laws and the turn of the 20th century. And so many people equated the two. It's it's they they can't seem to be separated in so many people's minds. And so I wanted to hit on some birth control milestones that were happening at the same time as the abortion laws were being rolled back in so many states across the country. So in 1965, speaking of the Comstock laws, the U.S. Supreme Court did away with them, saying that the private use of contraceptives was a constitutional right. And immediately... Ten states loosened their birth control restrictions, followed in the next three years by, I think, 13 others. And then in 1970, just five years later, President Nixon signed Title 10 into law, which made contraceptives available regardless of income and also provided funding for educational programs and research in contraceptive development. Hey, that's a pretty cool thing that old Nixon did. Right? There we go. All right. Thanks for that, at least, Nixon. Um, Planned Parenthood got money from Title X and Medicaid patients to subsidize birth control, STD screenings, and other reproductive health services for patients who might lack health insurance coverage. So that's a really big deal. Well, yeah, and that's why Title X is so important still today. I mean, it's still it's still with us, and it still helps Planned Parenthood and other uh, reproductive health clinics help people in this country. And then in 1972, the Supreme Court <laughs> finally okays birth control use by unmarried women. Thanks. I mean, like, thank you. No, thank you. But like, guys, country, United States people, <sighs> it took that long for it to be like, all right, unmarried women, like, we'll let you have this as well. And isn't it wild to think that it took the Supreme Court mm-hmm. to decide that? It's wild and yet not yeah. in this country's history. Especially considering all of the history we've just been going over. Yeah. Uh, but on the abortion front, what's happening simultaneously in this time, if we hop back a little bit to 1962, the American Law Institute calls for abortion to be legal under certain circumstances. So like in instances of rape and incest, they were it was this this whole group of judges, lawyers, law enforcement who's saying, like, come on, like we we have to loosen the restrictions on women who go through these certain situations. In 1967, if we hop back across the pond, Britain passes the Abortion Act, allowing for abortion as long as two medical professionals agreed that pregnancy endangered the mom's life or the mental or physical health of the woman and her children or in cases of fetal deformity and handicap. It's also in this year that Colorado becomes the first U.S. state to rework their abortion laws based on those American Law Institute recommendations. So this is what Kristen's talking about when she mentioned how in 
America, we start seeing this rollback on the across the board ban on abortion. And in 1970, we get some really good news. Hawaii becomes the first state to decriminalize abortion. And this is through 20 weeks and only for residents. The big news also that year, New York is the first to legalize abortion without that residency requirement and through the 24th week of pregnancy if performed by a physician. And in the first year, abortion became legalized in New York. 60% of the women who had abortions in that state came from out of town. In 1972, for instance, an estimated 100,000 women traveled to New York in order to have an abortion. I mean, and that also goes to not just the literal geographical lengths that women would go to for an abortion, but think about, again, the time, the cost. I remember my mom, who has been a flight attendant for about 400 years, has told me stories about how when she was first starting out flying and she was flying those short turnaround trips, which is basically you go out one day and you come back the same day uh, on the same plane. And she would take up young women to New York and see them either traveling alone or with an older woman. And that those same women would be coming back on the night flight on the same same return trip to Atlanta. So with the wink and the nod of like, oh, okay, well, you're going to go have something done in New York. You're traveling to New York for a purpose. Oh, my gosh. And just thinking, this it has been making me think, too, about especially the situations in Texas where so many clinics are being shut down and mm-hmm. the thousands of miles that women have to drive in order to get to a clinic. Yeah, with all of those tens and tens and tens of thousands of women who are traveling to New York, not everybody could do that. Yeah. You know, you had to have the time and the money and the resources to be able to travel and have the procedure done. Well, then in 1973, old SCOTUS hands down its decision in Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion. And like I said, though, by this time, abortion reform legislation had been introduced in all but five states. And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually was one of many who were concerned over how Roe went down because it was uh, legalized on the basis of the 14th Amendment and right to privacy. And she and others were concerned that by not going the state by state route, it would, as it has been, be immediately challenged. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it was and it has been ever since. Starting in 1976 with the Hyde Amendment, uh, Representative Henry Hyde introduced his namesake amendment, which prohibited federal Medicaid funds for abortions for poor women. So right out of the gate, mm-hmm. we have poor women being shoved to the side yet again. Here's the thing in this whole the whole history of abortion. Poor women, women of color are Always the ones who are hit the hardest. Yeah, I mean, we think of the no federal funding for abortion argument as being a modern thing, part of the modern Planned Parenthood debate that's going on that's raging and won't stop raging. But no, I mean, this was immediately after Roe that the no, we aren't going to let you use federal funds for abortion thing that started out right away. It's also the same year. Interestingly enough, that abortion becomes part of political platforms. The Republicans adopt their anti-choice platform and the Dems align themselves with a pro-choice platform. This is also the year that Planned Parenthood sees its first arson and a series of bombings follows in 1978. 
And next up on this depressing timeline, because it took us so long to get to 1973, and now we're just tumbling right back down this hill. Uh, in Bilotti versus Baird, the ruling found that states could insist that a minor obtain parental consent or persuade a judge that she was mature or that an abortion without parental notification was in her best interest. So essentially, we start to complicate the process for obtaining an abortion on demand. And in 1980, that Hyde Amendment rears its head again. In Harris v. McRae, the ruling stated that states were not required to fund abortions for which federal reimbursement was not available thanks to that Hyde Amendment. Further, Hyde's funding restrictions were found not to violate the Fifth Amendment. So it's against this backdrop in the 80s during and post Reagan administration that anti-abortion birth control and sex ed rhetoric and policies really pick up as does violence against abortion clinics. Again, in 1984, we see even more Planned Parenthood bombings. And speaking of Planned Parenthood, in 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey upholds a highly restrictive Pennsylvania law that included mandatory waiting periods, parental consent, and bias information. And further, and this was really troubling also to Notorious RBG, the court abandoned the legal principles of Roe and allowed laws designed to limit access to abortion at any stage of pregnancy so long as the law does not place an undue burden on a woman's access to abortion. And the definition of an undue burden, my friends, is massive. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite recently, there I forget the court case, but uh, these judges were going back and forth, I believe, over an issue in Texas and this whole undue burden thing. And women were having to drive thousands of miles. And one of the judges was like, well, it's pretty flat in Texas. Uh, They're not they're not walking. I mean, unless they are. But geez, what? Yeah, really? No. And I I rolled my eyes so heavily so many times reading that whole undue burden bit, because what are what are you what's supposed to be the undue burden? Like, I mean, simply by closing clinics, you're placing an undue burden on these women who have to travel. Well, yeah, and with the mandatory waiting period, I mean, you have jobs on the line mm-hmm. and I mean, so much that you have to to do in order to obtain one. And then the 90s, there's just a horrific string of violence. Yeah, in pretty rapid succession, we see uh, in 1993, Dr. David Gunn becoming the first U.S. abortion provider to be murdered. Uh, the following year, another Planned Parenthood doctor, his security escort and two Planned Parenthood employees were killed in separate shootings. And in 98, we see a bombing that kills an off-duty police officer and a sniper killing a doctor. So the 90s were incredibly violent and scary for both abortion providers and seekers. And more recently, in 2007, in Gonzalez v. Carhartt, SCOTUS upholds the so-called Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, which President George W. Bush had signed into law in 2003. And here's the thing. There is no medical procedure known as partial birth. Essentially, it's more of a rhetorical manipulation. Yes, for a later term abortion. But the law has been interpreted as barring doctors from performing an intact dilation and evacuation, which is a procedure where there's no instrumentation before the fetus is removed unless the fetus is no longer alive. 
So it's it's horrifying. I mean, this is so much context for the debate and the violence we're experiencing today around abortion and Planned Parenthood. But it's horrifying that literally, I mean, since the Roe v. Wade ruling, we've just been trying to climb back down that mountain. Well, and we've forgotten where we came from to begin with. Yeah. I mean, was this history as surprising to learn for you as it was for me, just in terms of all of the complexity and the midwifery and all of this bait and switch that happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The fact that abortion seems to be, yes, do people for whatever reason find abortion to be immoral? And have they? Yes. Or to be taboo? Yes. But the fact that abortion seems to have been over our history a tool for so many other arguments and so many other fights, whether it is getting midwives competition out of the picture or whether it is having more control over women and their bodies. Um, I think that aspect of it is is pretty, pretty stunning and disgusting. And of course, it's not just in the United States where the abortion issue is far from settled. I mean, we have listeners in Ireland who know this well. They're still no legal access over there to abortion on demand. And that law was recently upheld in Northern Ireland. Um, there are six nations, the Holy See, Malta, Dominican Republic, El Salvador, Nicaragua and Chile that don't allow abortion under any circumstances. So regardless of where our listeners stand politically and morally on this issue, because I know that we have listeners who are 100 percent pro-choice and who are 100 percent anti-choice and anti-abortion, although you can be pro-choice and anti-abortion, those are you know, not mutually exclusive. I hope that what we've talked about has offered important historical context to just better understand what those politicized platforms really mean Mm -hmm. and what they mean to individual women's lives. Because I think a lot of us are so familiar with the imagery of coat hangers. And we know that these back alley abortions happened and that some terrible things went down. But I don't think we really understand just how much is at stake with this entire reproductive rights issue. And so I do hope to hear from listeners. I'm interested to know whether they were as surprised by some of this history and this context as we were. So much of it was stunning. So much of it wasn't even really that surprising when you think about it. But just how gross it was to me that women seem to be these pawns in this constant ongoing argument. So listeners, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And I also want to invite listeners who have had abortions, if you would like to share your story with us, either openly or anonymously. We are safe spaces to do that. Again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com, at momstuffpodcast on Twitter, and you can also message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. I have a letter here from Katie in response to our perfectionism episode. She says that she put the episode on while she was getting ready for work one morning, and by the end, she found herself in tears. So Katie writes, 
I've never used the word perfectionist to describe myself. Prior to listening to Little Miss Perfect, I hadn't ever really even thought about the concept of perfectionism. But each point you touched on during the show hit closer and closer to home, starting with the discussion of parental influence. My parents always held us to very high standards in every aspect of our lives, which I don't necessarily consider to be a bad thing as they only wanted the best for us. But you mentioned one key factor that my parents unfortunately did not take into account, balancing those high expectations with loving support and enthusiasm. My siblings and I were under immense pressure to achieve academically, succeed socially, and maintain the appearance of a perfect family life while receiving little to no reassurance that we were smart enough, good enough, pretty enough, or that we would be loved no matter our failures or shortcomings. As crazy as it may sound, I didn't fully realize the impact that had on my adult life until I heard the show. I'm painfully aware of my habit of procrastination, but I'd never really made the connection with the concept of perfectionism. I realized I tend to put things off when I'm concerned the outcome may not be perfect, especially creative pursuits. I've always loved writing, and I've made several attempts at blogging and submitting articles for publication, but I always end up leaving each project unfinished. I now know this is due to the inherent imperfections and potential for harsh criticism. I love the idea you presented to soothe these anxieties, like letting those worries play all the way out with the what-if prompt. Usually, if I continue to think about what might happen next, if I do or don't do something, my worries shrink because I can hear how insignificant the worries actually are. This has helped me follow through with starting and maintaining a blog. By far, the biggest shock concerning perfectionism came in the research statistics about women who exhibit perfectionist tendencies being much more likely to cheat. I married young and made every possible effort to construct the illusion of a perfect life and marriage. When my sex life with my husband became less than perfect, I looked outside of our marriage to find the idea of sexual perfection. Eventually, we decided to divorce, and I struggled immensely with the fallout surrounding the implosion of my seemingly perfect life. I couldn't stand the idea of my imperfections being broadcast in such a public and painful way. After seeing a therapist for well over a year now, I had yet to make the connection between my being unfaithful and my penchant for perfection. But thanks to Kristen and Caroline, I've reached a deeper understanding of myself. I'm optimistic that this new awareness of myself will help me to live a more fulfilling and balanced life. So truly, thank you. I am now a devoted Sminty listener. I think what you two are doing is so important and meaningful. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, Katie. And I've got a letter here from Naomi. She writes, Your recent episode about lube has brought to mind a difficult time in my life. I was about five weeks postpartum after a cesarean birth. My then-husband was anxious to resume marital relations after our son was born. Unfortunately, though I was ready, it felt like daggers. Turns out that breastfeeding, thanks to hormones, can lead to a thinning of the vaginal wall, or so my research said, and it's quite common. The answer is lots and lots of lube. I know that I and many other new moms I've spoken with have a lot of fear that first time after a baby's born, in particular if they had a difficult or traumatic birth experience. Having it feel like daggers compounds that fear exponentially and can lead to more trauma psychologically. I heartily wish that someone would have told me to include lube that first time. I can't tell you all the pain it would have saved me and my husband if we'd only known. And lube is such an easy answer. I hope you ladies will pass this on. Well, Naomi, your wish is granted. And listeners, for all of your stories, you can send them to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can read more of the delightful history of abortion, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 